Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to Novel Experience, a podcast about writing and books for writers, readers, and anyone who's dreamed of being published. I'm your host, Kate Sawyer, author of The Stranding and This Family, And every week I chat to guest authors from across the genres, all at different stages in their careers, who generously give us an insight into how they write, why they write, and their journeys to, through, and beyond publication. Because really, we're all kind of writing the same stories. We just write them in different ways. I mean, it's been the same since... The, the Greek myths or the Ice, Nordic tales, like the Icelandic tales, you know, the same sagas, we're all telling the same kind of stuff, um, but we just tell them in a completely different way. My guest today is Anne Griffin, author of When All Is Said, Listening Still, and her most recent, The Island of Longing a powerful new novel about grief, hope and community. Anne chats about her background as a book buyer for Waterstones in Dublin, how she was in her mid-40s before she even started writing, how she wrote a novel with the title of her third book before she was published but never used it and so is using it now, how second novel syndrome was very real for her, but third novel syndrome is a thing too, and how she deals with writing about deeply sad things. I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did talking to Anne. All of the books that we talk about are listed in the show notes, along with Anne's social media links and links to buy her book and if you do enjoy the podcast please don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen it makes a huge difference to people who might find this podcast helpful finding it hello Anne hello Kate lovely to be with you welcome to novel experience thank you so much for being my guest today Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Kate. Delighted to get the invitation. (laughs) So I so enjoyed your most recent novel, The Island of Longing. And I have lots I want to ask you about the process of writing that and indeed your other novels. But I'll begin by asking you, have you always written? No, I haven't, Kate. I am one of those unusual people who didn't come out of the womb thinking I want to be a writer. In fact, <laughs> I could say um, I, was, I wasn't the best at English even in school. And um, I loved storytelling. That was my thing. I love storytelling. We have a, a wonderful storyteller here in Ireland. I mean, we're all storytellers in Ireland. But with this particular guy yeah. called Eamon Kelly, who told the most amazing banshee stories and about fairies. And it was just, oh, it used to send shivers down my spine. So I loved all of that. But I didn't like the, within English, the the examination of a text and the examination of a sentence. I do now. 
love it now mm-hmm. and just wax lyrical about that stuff now but back then that just didn't draw me so you know if you'd ask my English teacher who in the class is going to have a best-selling novel she would not have chosen me I guarantee you that <laughs> um so no um but I did love I, I as I said I love storytelling but my big thing was history I was really into mm-hmm. Um, you know, and not military history now or anything. I mean, it was more social history. So while everybody was talking about, you know, the dates, uh, the significant dates of World War One, I'd be thinking more about, you know, the soldier writing home to to his mother and how the mother was feeling back in Ireland, maybe, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And and so it was that kind of thing that grabbed me. And and I studied that in college, and and went on from college to work for Waterstones Booksellers for eight years in Dublin, and it was there. Yeah there that the magic began for me in terms of being brought back to that storytelling that that love of storytelling and so all the so I was a non-fiction buyer and all my fiction buyer friends who were budding writers themselves um would would hand me these wonderful novels and say come on you got to read this you got to read that and, and by the time I'd left Waterstones um I was just a fiction fiend and um but still, so I left Waterstones at 30, and but I still wasn't writing like these guys were. These guys would be getting up. These would-be writers would be getting up at like five o'clock in the morning, putting in two hours work, then heading into work to sell books, then go home, well, after a few pints possibly to try and, and write a bit more. Um, but, you know, I, I hadn't been won over to that side of things at all. Never, never thinking that I'd, I'd, I'd become a writer. And I went... 15 years working as a community development worker, went back to college, retrained as a community development worker and spent 15 years working for charities in various posts. But it wasn't until my very final post in, in, um, in at the charity in which I was working for at the time, when I had specialized, gone on specialized within financial management that I thought, OK, I've completely lost my way in life. You know, from a person who loves sto- loved storytelling to to counting the cash and making sure everything, every I was dotted, T crossed. I mean, I was anal at that point. I thought there's something really wrong here. So it was in a conversation with one of those fiction buyers from Waterstones who'd gone on to be a published writer. And he said to me, you know what, Anne, you should uh, you should write. You really just should write. He said, I mean, you've been reading good fiction now. How many years? Just go write. And I think he was kind of saying to me, you know, maybe just tap into something creative that you haven't been able to for the last little while. And maybe mm-hmm. use it almost as a therapeutic way. So this was back in 2013. I was now... Uh, so I was I'm trying to figure out I can't do maths right now God talk about (laughs) a financial controller at one point in my life how embarrassing um I was 44 I was 44 at that point and I thought okay yeah yeah okay I'll do it and at that point I had the chance to go to a beautiful island in Ireland called um Cape Clear Island which is Ireland's most southernmost island beautiful beautiful weather down there um and um I thought right well if I'm going to sit looking at the Atlantic for four months I'm going to write and that is Mm. what I did and that's where it started 10 years ago I started to write at the age of 44 and haven't stopped since Kate and so that first thing that you started writing looking Mm. out at the Atlantic was that Mm. what became your debut novel no it wasn't, but here's mm. an interesting thing that I'm going to tell you now, Kate. That thing that I wrote, 70,000 words that lives in a drawer and will never come out, was called The Island of Longing. Ah. I had that title in my life for 10 years, and I am so thrilled that I now have a novel I am so proud of to call The Island of Longing. I'm so glad that that title found, finally got its day in a way, you know, yeah. uh, with the third book coming out. But no, so that that initial book was all about the exercise of, do I have the stamina to write 70,000 words for mm-hmm. from a person who's never written anything in her life? Um, I thought, you know, I just want to see if I can do this. So it, I did. I was four months there and I wrote this book that was 70,000 words long. Um, and I pretty much kept it to myself. I pretty much knew that, okay, this isn't great, but I've proven to myself that I can, I have the stamina. Now I mm-hmm. just need to actually 
go and figure out how it is you write, you know, how it is you really write, you know. Um, and and that's when I started to write short stories. And the very first short st story I ever wrote got um, shortlisted for a prestigious prestigious New Irish Writing Award here in Ireland. And of course, from then I thought, well, I'm an obviously an absolute genius. And, you know, expected, <laughs> expected every short story I wrote or anything I wrote from there on in to be shortlisted and perhaps win everything going. I mean, honestly, what a land I got in terms of, you know, that just isn't how how it works. Um, and um, so I so I started then to look around for a story that would be a novel because I kind of realized that I like short stories, but I really like the novel form. Um, mm -hmm. And um, that's when I, so this was about a year, year and a half to, after um, that I had my first, um, my first attempt at writing a novel. Um, and I found a story on the, off the coast of Mayo. Um, and that is the story that became When All Is Said, the debut novel. And I was a clever little girl. I was a clever little writer because what I did was at the same time as writing that first draft, I applied to do a master's in University College Dublin. And yeah. I decided when I, if I could get into this master's, I was going to workshop the, the draft of this novel I was working on at every opportunity I got. So basically, I was going to make my fellow students and my lecturers so sick of this novel that they'd be so delighted to see me leave after a year with my master's <laughs> under my arm. And that is what happened. And it's it's funny when the debut came out, none, none of the of the uh, of the 12 of the students sitting with me needed to buy the book because they were sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> so whilst they were there cheering me on at the at the launch, they were like, not opening that thing ever again. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how the debut novel came to be. I used all their their analytical skills. I used all mm -hmm. their brilliance to help me hone that novel. And and mm. uh, yeah. Had you written it before you uh, before you yeah. Finished had, it, like you'd finished the first draft. Exactly. So I brought the first draft in, or what I was saying was the fourth draft. But really, I still hadn't a clue what writing was about. I didn't understand that drafts were huge, could be huge structural draft, you know, change changes. That yeah. that's what redrafting meant. You know, I thought, you know, doing a second draft was like you know checking it for typos I didn't understand that no we're talking about taking this story apart and putting it back together in different ways and cutting out chunks of it mm. so I went in saying oh here I am and I've gone the fourth draft of this book and I said this in none other than Anne Enright's class now Anne Enright is <laughs> Uh, honest to God. And when I look back now, I feel so embarrassed that I was saying my fourth draft and really what I've been doing was correcting my typos, you know, but um, and, and she was so she was so kind. And Anna's just was just one of the the best teachers. It was I was we sat for eight weeks just listening to how brilliant this woman was. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that's what I did. I, I brought in what I thought was my fourth draft really was just the first. And they helped me all of those lectures uh, helped me understand, you know, how much work needed to be put into it to get it right. So by the time I'd, by the time I'd finished on the MA, um, I, I had a very good draft at hand. Um, and that's when I started to send it around to agents and to all the publishers in Ireland. Publishers in Ireland, you can pretty much send you don't need an agent, so you can deal directly with the publisher, but pretty much they all rejected it. And oh, really? um, yeah, yeah. And and I, I don't know exactly why. Maybe they were just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why, but I got some very encouraging emails, very encouraging rejections. <laughs> um, <laughs> can you get very encouraging reje rejections? Are they really that encouraging? I think, well, they were. I think so. Mm, I got two in particular, which just gave me hope. And I went on from there then to get to do the classic, to get the writers and artists yearbook and to sit down and start going through it for to submit to agents in the UK. And um, was working my way 
through that, getting getting the usual amount of rejections until one day I didn't. And I got somebody who said, ooh, really like this. Really, really like this. Um, I'd like to sign you up. So that was fantastic. <laughs> and so you are published with Hodder. Hodder Is that yeah. for I am the UK? Mm, mm. So it's yeah. um, the scepter imprint of Hodder, yeah. um, which is a lovely kind of literary arm of, of um, Hodder. And it uh, it is available. Yeah, it's both Ireland and the UK. So I'm very, very lucky because when it comes to my books coming out, I get to work not just with the publicists um, and Mark marketing teams over in the UK but also in the Irish arm of Hachette over here and so I'm really really lucky I've got loads of great people working on my behalf to get the book out into the world and promote it and yeah it's, it's nice that sort of double um uh, double I suppose well you're covering more ground yeah. and you've got more focus I suppose and yeah so so when all is said, I've already mentioned, had um, great success. But I remember when Listening Still came out. It was during the pandemic, wasn't it? It was yes. during oh. lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. So what, how, how did those two publications, like, differ, really? And I'm just so impressed at the speed at which your third book is here mm. and whether... Yeah, I suppose I'm just thinking about as someone who's on this, you know, his second book is about to be published, mm. how how you sort of navigated those choppy waters from debut mm. <laughs> to mm. writing this third book. Is it a case of getting your words out um, as soon as possible, getting that first idea out, draft out, or is it a case of waiting to find the right story? How... how did it work for you? Mm. Um, with Listening Still, I had that idea before I even got picked up as f with an agent. It was uh. there. It was there in a way. Now, Kate, I have to say, I found writing the second novel really difficult. Um, mm. I, I, I don't know about you, but I found it really difficult because I was coming off the back of the success of the debut, trying to trying to whip the second book into shape with that voice on my shoulder saying you weren't even good at English in school for God's sake they're pretty much gonna you know figure it all out that yeah. you're not good at this stuff you know look I, it was classic imposter syndrome had it all yeah. um and 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 actually was very ill at the time myself turned out I was celiac and never knew it so I was I was oh, wow. really very ill writing that second book um mm. but the main thing for me the main struggle I had as a writer was I just wasn't finding the heart of the story. I just mm -hmm. couldn't find the heart of the story. I knew it wanted to, I wanted it to be set in an undertaker's. I knew I, I wanted it to be a struggling marriage, but I just I wasn't hitting the right notes on it. And both my UK and, and American editors were kind of saying, "Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not quite there. It's not quite there." Until one day, my American editor turned around and said you know, I think you should change the relationship. I can't even remember at this point what it was now so long ago. Change the relationship between these two characters and suddenly everything clicked into place. And I thought, that is it. And I literally mm. started the draft again. So I started mm. the draft. The, the whole thing, I wrote a whole new story, essentially. The characters may have had the same names, but it was a whole new story. And so I found... So sorry. So I wrote that then. So that was, and that was the beginning. That was the beginning of lockdown. I literally had was was had come to the conclusion I needed to rewrite the whole thing. So that was February twenty twenty. I started to rewrite the whole thing right through lockdown, and had it finished by September. We were editing it by September, and it was such so a whirlwind. So yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, my, my second novel yeah. was hard, and I have to remember that now because now my third novel feels hard. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and 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 it was hard. And I do think that all of those books that were written during lockdowns and stuff like that are yeah. always going to have a particular sort of like flavour for 
mm. authors. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, and it, it it it's interesting to me that you sort of found this thing that unlocked it. I suppose yeah. because yeah. sometimes you know that's the thing. So many people would have walked away from the book because it yeah. wasn't working. Um, and that's sometimes so many times I feel like I want to walk away from my work mm. in progress. But but actually, it's just finding that thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The bravery. Yeah. It's like a bravery to bridge yeah. a gap. Um, yeah. It's really interesting. I, I have to, I haven't read Listening Still, but yeah. I did write one of the short um stories that I wrote pre yeah. uh, lockdown was about a girl that worked in an undertakers that oh. could basically that could basically feel the like last moments of someone's death or no so, way, Kate. Yeah. Wow. isn't that funny wow. yeah <laughs> so that is really interesting yeah, so it's quite interesting. So, because I remember when I saw it, I was like, "Oh, I had that idea." But I mean, <laughs> you know, stolen my I've <laughs> She's stolen my story. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard because I've heard Elizabeth Gilbert talk about how she was writing this. Um, you know, the American novelist. Yeah. Uh, yes. And you know, uh, you know, lots of things she is, isn't she? But yeah. she quite open in Big Magic about, which is one of her non-fiction books, about how she was writing a book set in a jungle um, and she just mm. couldn't make it work and she couldn't find the way through to tell it. Mm. And then Bel Canto. And so oh, in the time yeah, she took fiddling around with this idea for like basically uh, a terrorist situation in the middle of the jungle. Right. <laughs> Anne Patchett had written her big novel about a terrorist situation in a jungle. Um, and um, yeah, Elizabeth Gilbert had to shelf hers. That's in, that's in the book. But I, and she was just like, it's an interesting thing because she talks about how ideas, like you have to grab hold of them, but that makes me feel slightly breathless. Like I've got to quickly yeah. get my ideas out. I I'm know. Sure it's true. Yeah, I'm not sure it's true. I feel as though if Elizabeth Gilbert had written a, uh, or still did write a, you know, a, a hostage situation in yeah. a jungle, I think I would probably still read that, even though I love Bel Canto, mm. just because they're quite different authors. Yeah, you know, I I agree. I agree because really, we're all kind of writing the same stories. We just write them in different ways. I mean, it's been the same yeah. since. The, the Greek myths or the Ice Nordic tales, like the Icelandic tales, you know, the same sagas. We're all telling the same kind of stuff, um, but we just tell them in a completely different way. And yeah, I mean, I have a bit of a terror when when I come across books that are slightly similar to the one I'm writing. I'm going, oh God, God, I have to stop. I can't write this anymore. But you know, then you kind of, you know, pull yourself together and say, no, I can't because this particular version of this story is mine. You know that yeah and apart from anything else if books are quite similar to yours and coming out at the same time like in theme it's really helpful yeah. for events and festivals. exactly great marketing too great marketing yeah exactly yeah. i saw something recently on twitter where the you know the tom hanks movie a man called otto isn't that what they're calling it but it's oh, yes. from the a man yeah. called O. and i saw somebody had tagged when all is said in in that stream as like oh here's a book that you know if you like that book here's another one that's quite similar i was thinking god that's great you know brilliant thank you <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. um so we could have our you know episodes on both of your um other books but yes. because it's just come out i'd really like to talk specifically about the island of longing and so mm. to kick us off I'm mm. going to ask you to do that thing that all authors hate to do, which is yeah. to give me the pitch for the book. The pitch, okay. So, The Island of Longing is the story of how a mother and family deal with the disappearance of a child and how within that horror, somehow the light gets in 
to their world as well. And so this is a story of Rosie Driscoll, whose daughter, Saoirse, who at 17, eight years prior, disappeared from right outside the family front door. And when we meet Rosie, she has, uh, she has, she has gone back to the island of her birth. And this has been the working of both her husband and son, but also her father, who is there as the ferryman. And she is there to ostensibly help him as he is aging. But really, it's about they've done this to give Rosie a sense of peace and a sense of to, to catch her breath from this one woman crusade that she has been waging on the world to find her daughter, Saoirse. And that's what mm. it's about. And, the, and, well, and, how, and how within that she does find th these moments of solace and beauty with on the island with both the islanders who have always been there and some of the new blow-ins that have come in. Yeah. It actually, um, it's interesting. I, it really had an emotional effect on me, um, the book. And just when you were describing it there, it um, I, I got tingles again. Um, mm. I, I think part of it is down was down to such like clever structure that sort of really uh, unlocked something for me, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, I don't know, it's really left me with a feeling which I always like about books that make me feel something. I mean, I've read a few books recently mm. about um, people that have gone missing or yes. been kidnapped. And there's something just about the point of view. Yes. And there's something about the point of view in this book, though, that oh, it, it really you know, knocks me for six as a mother, I suppose. That's part yeah. of what it is about. Mm. But like mm. you say, there is light. Um, mm. However, whilst there is light, which we'll get to in a bit, mm. the psychological toll of being the mm. parent that is a child that's missing, I mm. guess that's part of what I'm talking about because mm. you can sort of feel Rosie's pain. Um, yeah. And it's heavy stuff to deal mm. with. And, and also stuff you've, that pe some people are experiencing. So exactly. I just wondered what form your research took to, mm. to, to yeah. you know, balance that. Yeah, so, I mean, um, in Ireland, as in the UK, there are a series of, um, there have been a series of disappearances for years, you know, around... Um, children and particularly around um, the disappearance of about five women back in the 90s in, in Ireland that um, really grabbed the attention of the nation. Any disappearance does. But there was one particular story of, of a woman called Deirdre Jacob who um, uh, was home, was, was at her front gate when she disappeared. They found her bag at the front gate. And that story never left me. I mean, yeah. none of the disappearances never left me, but that image of her bag at the gate mm -hmm. and that she was so close to home, that she was in, you know, so close to safety um, and that something horrendous had happened. And I wanted to look at that. I wanted to um, dig into that a bit more, how it was the family dealt with that. And I spent a lot of time... Um, I did a lot of, of reading around this stuff, but I also did a lot of um, going into, you know, archival footage of interviews done with the parents of particularly these five women who disappeared in the 90s um, and, and just listening to that, to the parents, to the families, watching them, watching how they moved, how they sat, how they, their facial expression, just wanting to kind of just get as close to them without being close to them, if you understand. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very, very grateful to to those parents who who did that and obviously gave up their time in order to try and find their children. And um, I had this ritual um, with my own son. Now, this, this actually started me on this, I want to write this book, okay? So in the mornings, I had this stupid ritual with my son where <laughs> I would be driving myself mad. I would give him a hug before he went off to school. So he was about 15 at this point. Give him a hug before mm -hmm. he went off to school. 
he would go down our driveway and I would watch him. I keep the door open and he had to, he had to turn around and wave to me before mm -hmm. I closed the door or there'd be trouble. Right. So I closed the door. Now, unbeknownst to him, I would then run up the stairs to the front bedroom window and I would watch him walk up the, the, the pathway up out of our estate. I would watch him and watch him and watch him until the last glimpse I saw of him was of his coat through the passenger window of my neighbor's car and that would be it and one morning i stood there saying what if that is it okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What if I never mm -hmm. see that again? And that's where it started. And that's where I went to then back into, you know, the research around you know what had happened to Deirdre Jacob and Anna McCarrick, uh, Anna, um, Annie McCarrick, and these other women. And indeed, then as as I'm as I'm writing this, as the story is there, Sarah Everard gets taken from yeah. the street. You know, and and you know, so it's just it it's just the most horrific thing any parent could ever go through. Um, and I wanted to write it, but I wanted to write it in a way. Kind of in a way where in when all is said and, and the, the the very, very sad, the, the sadness of when all is said, I wanted to dip mm. into that. I wanted to show a vulnerability and, um, you know, something that was true. And and and, mm -hmm. and I remember even when I was writing when all is said, and I remember telling my my husband what what this story was about. He said, you can't write that. It's too sad. And I said, I can. I know I can. And I, I think mm. it's just I don't know. It's giving due diligence, I hope, to the emotions and the, the the rawness and the horror that people have to uh, go through every day. A child disappears every day, and you know. Yeah. So as I mentioned there, there's a really interesting structural element to the book, where mm. in between the chapters we get very brief, very unsettling increasingly mm. so um glimpses mm. into the few minutes that changed everything when mm. Sersha was abducted mm. now as a as a reader <laughs> it's yes. quite there's something about the the structure of those tiny glimpses that um first of all you don't necessarily understand what is happening exactly. um and then as it goes on there's a real it's got gives you a real propulsion through the text because you want to find out what is happening mm. and how that reflects in like Rosie's world mm. um mm. you know view of it yes but also there's something about it because it just you don't tell the abductee the abductors story mm. we mm. don't get the full picture which makes us feel a bit like Rosie that she doesn't have the full picture of her daughter's mm. disappearance, but also puts us in the position of Sersha. And I think that's why I found it like so emotionally um, yeah. affecting. Um, yeah. So I just wonder as, a, as, a, as an author, mm. how did that decision to do that mm. take place? Was that an early decision or was that something no. that came later? Came very late. and. What it, it came out of a discussion with my editors um, in one of the feedback emails that I'd gotten from early drafts of this book. One of my editors, I've, I have two editors. I, I need two editors. <laughs> I'm very lucky at the time I had two editors. It was just a cross, sorry, crossover period between things. And I, and one of the editors said to me, um, you know, I think we need to know what happens just to, to Searsha. And I was thinking, well, 
No, that's the whole point. Families don't know. Predominantly, families don't know. And this is the story of, of somebody like Deirdre, Deirdre Jacob. Now, I know it's ever, Sarah Everard. There was an explanation. But yeah. somebody like Deirdre Jacob, the body's actually never been found. And, and um, I was like, well, no, that's the whole point. I, I want to dig into what families have to go through. Now there is a yeah. certain res resolution in this book, I suppose I should say, but but yeah. what 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 I, what I thought was okay, but but the editor is telling me this from a reader's point of view. The reader needs something, needs something more. But I don't want to give a nice kind of, and I say this in inverted commas, closure ending, um, because yeah. the families don't have that. So so I thought, well, I will give something. I will give something and yeah. I will do it in this way. And I and and so those little small snippets that you get are, I think I counted it up, they are like 200 words at most, but they have such an impact because mm -hmm. they run alongside and they are giving a glimpse that Rosie never knows really, I suppose. No, Ro Rosie never knows. And Rosie may never no. know, you know. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, it was a really interesting story in terms, or sorry, really interesting um, thing to do in terms of working with an mm -hmm. editor around. Well, how do we bridge this this gap that that is there in the story without bridging it fully? And so this is how mm -hmm. I came up with it. And you know, I I think lots of readers come up with things by virtue of reading other books, you know, and just yeah, and just lots, read lots and see. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's how we learn. That's our constant learning process is through reading. And and um, so, you know, having seen other books where there was, you know, kind of s small little recesses almost in the bigger story. Mm -hmm. thought, oh, OK, well, you know, maybe maybe I can do it that way, but I'm only going to give so much. And that was really important to me. That was the clincher for me. I was only going to give so much. Yeah, it's very, I think that's a really interesting thing. Like with my second novel, I just mm. had, as a reader, you know, I, I I did the things that I knew that I wanted to do. Mm. And then close to the end of the, like, drafting, you know, structure, mm. it was done, there was like line reading. I still knew there was something about the sort of like whole structure of it mm. that wasn't quite working mm. for me. Okay. Um, and I found I found another voice and a sort of ah. an interlude that ah. that helped to bind the whole thing of what I was trying to say. But I couldn't have done that until I'd written everything that I had. I couldn't have started with it. That's why I asked really because mm. I do feel like it's um, something that you know people some editors might be like oh you know you're embellishing and all of that stuff yeah. but I did think that sometimes it it's about being able to take a step back and say like what's missing you know those yeah. final touches of light that a painter mm. might add in the final picture it's the same yeah. thing I think yeah yeah totally agree totally agree I mean I I sent the draft back where I'd made those changes and I said I'm not sure what you're going to think of this but have a look. And, and I really wasn't sure. I wasn't sure myself. Um, but it, you know, it was a resounding yes from the editors. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it was actually really nice to play around with the book and, um, and try something different uh, structurally yeah. with it. Um, I, I really enjoyed that, that process, I have to say. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things that so beautifully ties the themes of Rosie's story together is that she's a ferry driver oh, like yes. her father. So yes. the first woman to get her ticket. Now, obviously, the title <laughs> gives away the fact that it's mostly set on an island and yeah. she is basically moving people in between the island and the mainland. So what inspired that choice? And did you have to research much about ferry driving? Well, luckily enough, I know a female ferry captain. Uh, ah. and, yes. And this whole thing of um, 
you know, the island and fairing it came from my period being on Cape Clear Island um, or Elam Clara, as it's known in Irish, um, and which is one of Ireland's um, remaining um, Irish speaking islands. So um, I had been there for, as I, as I was talking about earlier, for four months and watching this particular ferry captain who is um, actually a teacher and teaches up in, in Cork in the city, but she'd come home at the summer and she would be there for the very, very summer, the very busy summer season. So I would watch her and I would watch her have such command of her work and her crew within this very male dominated industry. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, in me, I knew I'm holding this story. I'm holding the story and one day I'm going to write it. So a couple of years back um, when I was still possibly writing, listening still, um, I possibly lockdown was just coming out. Um, we, we were all getting out again. And I asked this very captain, I said, would you, would you speak to me about what it is like to be a captain of a ferry? And um, so two summers in a row, she gave of her time speaking to me about her experiences and how she came to be um t- to do this summer job um and um she was amazing she's a powerhouse um she is a woman who has you know had to battle her way through a lot of male ego to get where she is and uh, so yeah it was it was an absolute pleasure to speak with her and to be able to build this into the story and to give rosie such such an interesting background and give her something that all where she also finds a release from the from the torture of what it is to be the mother of a missing child um and to you know to allow her the moment when she goes back to the ferry for the first time and is bringing the first she's she is steering her way on her first journey back to the mainland after all of these years and she feels some kind of peace that she has never felt before um well she's never felt in all of the eight years where she's been missing her daughter and it was nice to give rosie that and it was a a joy to write that whole side of the story yeah yeah and it is joyful i mean that's what you should say that there are there's also relationships that are joyful Mm. to the relationship with her father something that often in literature isn't a happy relationship <laughs> it's lovely yeah. lovely to see that like the depth yeah. of love between them uh making new friends yeah her marriage might not be in the best state but you can still see that there's like love there there's mm. there is uh, and then there's also some great characters on the island too um both past and present because there are memories as well of um mm her her growing up so it is really um uh, light it has got these light moments yeah with the sort of heart the yeah. very emotional stuff too and the ending as well like you say you aren't tying everything up with a bow there's plenty yeah. that is left to the reader's imagination but there's also and there is you know uh sadness and loss but there's a there's a feeling of um a new beginning is possibly mm. being putting it a bit strongly, yeah. but there's yeah. hope. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's that's very that was very important. And and you know, I um, I worked hard at that because I, I wanted to I wanted to give that to Rosie. I wanted to give that to Rosie and Hugh. It's terrible; they're fictional characters, but I wanted to give them something. Um, yeah. And so I'm really really happy with with that ending and with wherever their lives may go um and yeah it was i remember at one stage um when one of my editors said to me are we going to have a happy ending in this book annie give ending please (laughs) like well i'm not sure you can really what i'm doing but okay leave it with me (laughs) (laughs) so so how long did the first draft of this novel take, your third novel? Was it yeah. a similar sort of time frame? No, it was very quick, I have to say. Oh. This, uh, coming, yeah, coming out of the horrors of my second book of awful rewrites and not knowing whether I was going to make it to the finish line, this story came 
very, very fast. In terms of a first draft, I was, I'd um, a first draft within about six months, which I was, and it was a draft that I was happy with. It was quite terrible because my drafts usually are, my first drafts usually Everyone's are. Everyone's Yeah, <laughs> but um, I, I had a feeling of, okay, I've got this story, which was unlike listening still. It was more back to it was more back to what I'd felt about when all I said was no I I'm in command of this story I have a lot of work ahead of me but I've got this story down so I, I you know I am a firm believer that it is all you just never know what you're going into with a particular book um, no. and when you get an idea and you don't know um, whether it's going to flow not that it flows beautifully but but you just have this this kind of base feeling of no this is okay i need to mm-hmm. I, I need to put the work in here but it but it's okay i'm in command of it because i i know what i want from it um so yeah so i had the first draft within about six months sent it to my editor or not my editor sent it to my agent who was wonderfully kind about it because it was a bit crap um it really was <laughs> i mean there was mistakes all over the, i mean really really bad embarrassing stuff going you know <laughs> Anyway, and she was very kind about it. And so then I went back into redrafting that and possibly then sent what I would consider the second draft to my editors far too early as well, because I'm sure they were looking at it going, God almighty, how have we commissioned this woman to write a third book? <laughs> but but again, but again, luckily they saw that the base story was there and they just needed to whip me into shape a little bit. So I was really, I found... I was so glad, Kate. You have no idea how glad I was that that third book came together so well. Because honestly, yeah. after the second book, I really, really wasn't sure I had it in me to continue to write fiction. Mm. <laughs> I really had it. was really such a, tra- a traumatic kind of second book. I'm really happy with the second book. I yeah. really am. But but just what it took out of me, and because I was, I suppose I was so ill within the middle of it. Um, yeah. I, I kind of thought, I'm not sure, I'm not sure about this. But lo and behold, Rosie Driscoll came along to save the day, and I'm just, I put all the love I have into that woman, and I, I adore her. Yeah, yeah, no, me too. Um, I, so I'm one of the things I'm interested in was. So you mentioned there that you were commissioned to write the novel because I'm interested mm. in also in whether mm. w- the expectations or deadlines push us forwards. So, for example, talking to Claire Fuller, she's never under contract for what she's writing. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, she only writes when she's out, out of contract. Well, she doesn't write when she's out of contract, but she doesn't have a contract for the book she's writing. So is yeah. that, has that ever been true for you or do you pitch an idea and then fill it in or which which oh, which God. sort of writer are you <laughs> i couldn't pitch an idea and then try and fill it in i've oh my god that would just fill me with dread. no i'm now yeah. i'm now um i am now thankfully in that claire fuller place where i am writing a novel and i don't I don't have an, uh, you know, I don't have contract around it, which is nice, which does give you a lovely sense of freedom. Of course, there's always the doubt. You kind of think, well, I may finish it and I may think it's great, but nobody might want to buy it. You know, <laughs> we'll have to well, see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's that fear, but you know, um, it is nice though. Writing the, the the fourth novel, it's kind of I'm just kind of dandering along with it you know there's no big time pressure I felt the time pressure with the second book horribly I have to say but Mm -hmm. that that had all the other issues going on with it that I've already talked about the third book I did I had a contract and I had pitched pitched the novel but thankfully it did work out nicely I didn't Mm -hmm. as as we talked about it flowed very well for me but I kind of like this situation I'm in now and um yeah. you know where where I'm just where I'm just you know riding at my own pace um and it's really nice and luckily my fourth novel is coming fairly easy to me as well you know so I'm expecting the fifth to be a doozy <laughs> to just <laughs> to just make me question once again should I really be writing fiction you know 
Um, but you know, this is the journey we all go on, isn't that? Isn't that it, Kate? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, if you're writing at the moment, do mm. you uh, do you write every day, and do you write for a certain amount of time, or do you give yourself a, a word count, or what do you? How do you work that? Yeah, I've changed quite a bit on all of this. I used to have a pattern to me, but I don't at the minute. But I suppose that's because, you know, I'm beginning to have a lot of stuff, you know, coming my way around the third book. So it's kind of interrupting the writing of the fourth, which is fine. Um, but on a good day, this is what would happen. I would write from nine to one because I know I am best then. Um, in the afternoon, I would get a little bit my mind will begin to wander a bit. I'd be a bit tired. Mentally, I'd be quite tired. Um, and um, so I don't write. I, you know, when I started out writing, I used to write every second I could. I can't do that anymore. I, and that's to do with age. I'm older. I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm still... I'm still just adjusting to life being a celiac, which if there's any celiacs out there, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's, um, mm. it's, it's, it's tough going, but I'm getting there. Um, so I find that I haven't got the energy. So roughly Monday through Friday, nine to one, I don't do the weekends at the minute because I try to give that over to uh, family. Uh, yeah. So actually that sounds like very little um, time when I think about it, but, you know that's it that's just that's the energy that's i can do but at the minute can i just say i am up in on a writer's retreat i've got four five wonderful days up here in a wonderful writing retreat in ireland if anybody's ever ever interested in looking it up it's called the tyrone guthrie center um or anna mccarrig it's another name but tyrone guthrie it is the most amazing writing retreat i have ever come across it was a building um, that was owned by Tyrone Guthrie, who in the 1930s, I think, made movies. Um, and it is the most beautiful estate. It's got a lake. It's got forests. It's got this amazing house. And he left this beautiful place to the state of Ireland to support its artists. He wanted to build a community where artists could come and write. And I am sitting here overlooking a beautiful forest and a lake talking to you right now, Kate. So I've had, well, I've, had... I've, I've just looked it up and yes, I can see why you're having a nice time. <laughs> and, and anybody from all over the world can come here at a ridiculously cheap rate, you know, for what you're given. It's fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to look it up myself. <laughs> so do you, yeah. when you're at home, do you have a, a place that you write particularly? Oh, God. Oh, I'm so crap at this. I try to have an office, Kate. I've had an office literally in nearly every room in the house. But I always end up, and I know this is going to sound mad, on my bed writing. I always really? end up. Yeah. And and even here in the time of recovery, I have myself set up on the bed because I don't know I, I, I had a geez I'm a, I'm a the walking wounded here I had a back injury years ago and it's actually sitting up and writing that that um you know typing into the computer that movement seems to affect this old injury so but if I lie back down on a bed and and have my laptop on my knees and I'm just kind of supported with a pillow under my head I'm not in pain <laughs> So it sounds mad. <laughs> so basically, that's where I write in my bedroom. I've tried. I've tried. Like, Marion, I know that Marion Keys certainly always used to write in bed, didn't she? Because she had that book that she wrote under the covers. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> you're in good company. So moving on from writing to reading, you've already mm. mentioned that you love reading, but... Yeah, yeah. I'd love to ask you for some recommendations, if possible. So mm -hmm. I'll start by asking you for something that you'd recommend to fans of your work. Oh, wow, fans of my work. Well, uh, I'm going to say, and you know, it's like, <laughs> it just sounds so weird coming from me, who, you know, is not at this person's level at, at all, but Anne Tyler. Anne Tyler and Mary Lawson, mm -hmm. two greats. Yeah. They are just my go-to people. They are amazing. I, um, I, they write 
they write with great empathy. They write with great emotion. They take everyday issues. They take huge issues and they just, and they write characters that you just adore. Um, yeah. Those two women I just think are amazing. Richard Russo is also a big favorite of mine and he's got a new book coming out this year called Somebody's Fool, which is kind of, I don't know if people out there have read Nobody's Fool and Everybody's Fool, but this is now Somebody's Fool, which goes back to the to the town of North Bath and all of the characters and the hilarious characters that, that are there. Um, so I'm just, I'm so excited for that coming out in August. But he, it's just, you know, I just love when somebody writes good characters. Um, not yes. necessarily characters that I, well, I usually do fall in love with them, but but characters that I find an empathy with, that I get where they are, and I, you know, it just, it's it's it does it for me. So, uh, is there? Uh, do you have particular favourites of Anne Tyler's or, yeah, uh, or Mary I, Lawson? Well, you know, Mary Lawson's Crow Lake series. So she's three of them. But you could start with Crow Lake if you haven't read Mary Lawson before. Just start with Crow Lake, and there's okay. two other books that kind of come as a kind of a connecting follow-up to it, but not really. Um, you could read them all. Um, at, you know, you don't have to start with Crow Lake necessarily. You could read any of her books at any stage and you still get the full story. Um, so with Anne Tyler, I love Celestial Navigation, which is one of her earlier oh, ones. One. Yeah, one, one of her earlier ones. Um, and then maybe a later one will be Digging to America. I just yeah, finished rereading re that one because I was doing, um, I'm doing a workshop actually over in the States in, in a couple of weeks um, about writing families within fiction. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to reread Digging to America. And oh yeah. my word, that woman is such an amazing writer. And talk about somebody who can do a party scene really well. She must have had mm -hmm. nine parties in that book. And she had, she can just command all of these voices so amazingly. I, I love her. Love those two women. So. Well, listen, Anne, if you're into um, stories about families, mm -hmm. I think I have one oh. <laughs> I could recommend. It's called Excellent. This Family by Kate Sawyer. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> On my bookshelf, Kate. On my bookshelf. <laughs> um, so... Is there a book that you've loved for years that you probably have given it the given it away the most, forced it into people's hands? Uh, yeah, all time fave. Oh, I think it would be Nobody's Fool by Richard Russo. One I absolutely adored was Turtle Moon by Alice Hoffman, and it was one of the ones that was handed to me um, back in my Waterstones days when I was in my twenties by one of the fiction buyers. And he said, read this woman, see what you think. And I adored Alice Hoffman. I mean, I I read everything um, she wrote. And Turtle Moon is one of my favorites. But in recent years, I haven't enjoyed her work so much. Okay. And then um, is there something that you've read recently or that's coming soon that mm -hmm. you would like to give a shout out, a lift? I surely would. Um, it's called The Red Bird Sings. And it's by oh. Fitzpatrick. Have you come across that yet, Kate? Now, this is getting a lot of love on yeah. the podcast. Uh, and it, 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 by the time this podcast goes out, it will be out, but it's not quite mm -hmm. out yet. Um, no, I've it's... had my, my plate full of for what I'm writing, reading for the podcast. But when something yeah. is mentioned like five times, I think yeah. probably it's worth looking it up. <laughs> it's really good. It's out tomorrow. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, set in 1897 in West Virginia, it is superbly written, superbly written by this uh, Irish Irish author, and it's going to get a lot of a lot of traction. It's going to get it's 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 amazing. It's it's a story of the murder of um, a woman in 1897 in West Virginia and the trial that surrounds it that puts her her husband goes on trial it's the writing within it is spectacular um I can't believe it's a debut it's absolutely spectacular so it's a wonderful historical read because this trial actually happened this murder actually happened so um yeah yeah brilliant great brilliant. well 
thank you so much for those recommendations and thank you so much for being my guest on novel experience today and it's been lovely to to you yeah a real joy and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the reader response to the island of longing I'm sure that everyone's going to love it as much as I did fantastic well fingers crossed and Kate thank you so much for being such a wonderful host thank you for listening to novel experience please check out the show notes for links and all the book recommendations from this episode And if you enjoyed listening, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast wherever you listened. Or if online reviews aren't your thing, then tell a friend. (laughs) I've been your host, Kate Sawyer, and I hope you'll join us again soon as I chat to more of your favourite authors about their novel experience.